Howdy folks, and welcome to the Arches National Park Geo Tour, a driving companion to the geology of Arches National Park, from entrance center out to Panorama Point. I'm Terry Dial, and joining me today on our drive through Arches is local Moab geologist Chris Benson, who is an expert on the interpretation of science behind the amazing geology on the Colorado Plateau. The way this tour works is we'll discuss geology at several preset locations along the main arches drive. We'll play about 20 seconds of music between stops so that you have time to pause the podcast and get to the next stop, hiking and checking out the sites along the way. And when you're ready to hear about the next stop, just resume playing the podcast. This content does not substitute, but rather is meant to supplement the informationals throughout the park. All of our stops are in major parking areas. There's no stopping on the road. Please pull off into designated pullouts. And also please be respectful while in this and all national parks and try to leave this place one piece of trash cleaner than you found it. As a reminder, before we get going, be sure to download the podcast now before we lose service in the park. Our first stop is the Arches Visitor Center parking lot, but if you're still waiting in line to get into the park, you can see most of the geology from here too. Thanks for being here and for sharing all your knowledge and enthusiasm for the geology of this incredible place. Would you start out by providing an introduction to the major players, the major rock layers that we're looking at right now, and what you think folks need to know to get started on interpreting the basic geology in Arches? Thanks, Terry. Glad to be here. Yeah, super dramatic entrance here at Arches National Park. And to really understand what the heck the deal is with all these arches, there's actually over 2,000 documented arches in the park. Um, we have to understand sort of a couple different things. The first is we want to understand what kind of rocks we're looking at, which is what you asked me. The second thing, we need to understand how these rocks have been bent, broken, and otherwise deformed. And then the third component would be how has time and weathering uh, played into this whole thing to make this park with so many different arches. So to start out, as we look up at the entrance to the park, that curvy road, goes up this sort of whitish tan sandstone layer and then you'll see sort of a dark red layer that's got some wavy beds and then above that we've got sort of this very sheer cliff wall and these three different layers we're going to see a lot at different points in the park and we'll go ahead and introduce them now. The bottom layer is something called the Navajo sandstone. The layer above that with the wavy red beds that's uh, known as the Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel Formation. And then the layer on top of that is the slick rock member of the Entrada Formation. So you're going to keep an eye on those as we work our way up the park road to our next stop. For the next stop, we're going to drive up the road and gain some elevation to get to the Moab Fault Overlook. That pullout 
is about a mile and a half up the road on your right. See you up there. So here at the Moab Fault pullout, we've gained a nice vantage point of the area. You can see down the Moab Valley, and looking across the highway to the west, there are some different rock layers exposed on that cliff face. Chris, could you now give us a sense of what type of rock we're looking at, its age, and the general utility behind naming rock layers? So yeah, here at the Moab Fault Overlook, we're basically right on top of the Navajo sandstone. And I know I threw out a bunch of names there, but let's just talk about briefly the types of rock that we're going to see here in the park. And overall, here on the Colorado Plateau, this sort of vast region of nearly flat-lying sedimentary rocks, we're going to see a lot of sandstones. And just like the name sounds, these rocks are made predominantly of uh, grains of sand that have been compacted and buried and cemented uh, over many, many millions of years. In particular, the Navajo sandstone here is estimated to be around 200 million years old. So in general, these sedimentary rocks are basically classified by how large the individual grains are that make up the sedimentary rock. And remember from your uh, basic science class, we've got three different types of rock. We've got igneous, we've got metamorphic, and sedimentary rocks. And sedimentary rocks are really cool and interesting because they tell a story. They're sort of like chapters in Earth history and we can look at the types of rocks that are located here on the Colorado Plateau and sort of reconstruct the paleo environments that left these rocks behind. So in this case, we've got sandstone. Sometimes if we have sedimentary rocks that are composed of much smaller pieces of material, that might be called a siltstone or a mudstone, or the smallest pieces would be called a shale. And these all reflect the energy of the depositional environment. Now that's really jargony, but what that basically means, if you've got a lot of physical relief, steep slopes, you're going to get big rocks rolling down the hills. Just think about the mountains. You have boulders, talus fields, but if you have a very deep ocean, for instance, you don't see big rocks like that. You see the finest grain shale rocks forming from deep ocean basins. So everything in between, you might see rivers with sandy beaches, or in this case, we're actually looking at 200 million year old dunes that existed during the Jurassic period. And that's what's making up most of the sandstone in this area. So these different rock layers have different names and geologists have uh, described them in great, great detail at, at places where they're well exposed. So for instance, the Navajo sandstone is sort of paying respect to that beautiful region of the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona where this rock layer is, is very beautifully exposed. Just above that, I mentioned we've got the Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel Formation. Now a member is just sort of like a subset of a formation, a geologic formation, sort of like your, your basic package of rocks, I guess you could say. And the Dewey Bridge is actually an old bridge just northeast of Moab where this particular rock layer is well exposed. And then on top of that, we've got the Entrada Sandstone uh, that's actually named for a spot out in the center of El Swell. But it basically allows geologists and, and, and everyone really to 
use the same language around a certain type of rock, a certain rock layer, because typically they all have certain patterns of weathering. Uh, sometimes it's very difficult to travel through various rock layers. Some rock layers have very valuable mineral deposits, so that's why it's useful to sort of name them and reference uh, in a consistent way these different names. So Chris, what facts are there to give us confidence in our interpretation of this story on the formation and age of these rock layers? So obviously no one was here, and all we can do is look at evidence and sort of propose theories. There's not really experiments that we can run to look at this, but the key thing with sedimentary geology is we look at processes that occur today, and we assume that um, gravity was working the same 200 million years ago as it does today. So for instance, like we can, we can look over to the south at that Moab sand dune there, and uh, we can assume that the way that the wind is currently pushing that sand into that sand dune is probably working the same way it has for millions of years. So if we find modern day examples of sedimentary structures or environments that produce sand, and then once that sand gets buried, it creates sandstone, we can sort of extrapolate and, and look back 200 million years ago and say, hey, this sandstone most likely formed from a wind deposit because it exhibits the same sedimentary structures, the same types of grains as we see in the modern record. The Moab Fall Overlook is obviously a stellar view of the valley, but we've stopped here because this location provides a clear example of an amazing process that happens on Earth's crust, and that is a fault. Would you explain what a fault is, why we care about them, and how to picture the fault at this location? All right, so yeah, here at the Moab Fault, uh, we're seeing some cool stuff, and we should care because faults are uh, related to topography. Uh, that's where earthquakes happen, so they are important. So first off, a fault is essentially like a crack or a rupture in the Earth's surface, and there's a couple different kinds of faults, but really you can just think of a big crack and these uh, pieces of the Earth's crust are sort of sliding past each other. And so specifically right here at the Moab Fault, uh, at this pullout, we're right on top of the Navajo sandstone, and uh, this rock layer should be on the other side of the valley to the south or southwest. This should be about a couple hundred feet above us, above above the rim. So what's happened here is we are on a side of the fault that has dropped down probably almost a thousand feet down on this side and then up on the other side. And so what that means is it breaks up the landscape and faults usually are places where you see roads or trails. So a great example of that is Highway 191. It basically parallels the trace of the Moab Fault that you can sort of see as you look out down that way. And in fact, the old Spanish trail used to go right through this area. So, so faults break the landscape up and typically we see lots of erosion. We see drainages form near faults and it helps people actually route find through resistant rock layers like that Wingate sandstone, which is yet another rock layer that makes up that cliff wall just to the south of us there. Okay, so that Wingate sandstone that is then underneath us right now? Yeah, you're tuning in to uh, the order of things. So that Wingate sandstone stratigraphically, or basically just the order of things, is actually underneath the Navajo sandstone. So that gives you a sense of how much offset or how much the block that we're in now has fallen down relative to the other side. Great question. Amazing. So the next stop is Park Avenue. That parking lot is about one mile up the road on your left.
Driving up the steep road, just after the entrance, we ascended through the Navajo sandstone, which is a lighter colored rock. And now at Park Avenue parking lot, we can see a deep red rock of the Dewey Bridge. Chris, would you explain what the color tells us about the ancient environment? Yeah, so the color of the rock has a lot to do with how much of the mineral hematite these sandstones have in them. And basically, that's just a fancy word for rust. And so the more sort of iron oxide rust that the sandstone has, the redder it's going to look. Now, some different things can happen when these rocks are buried. And just like you pointed out, when we were driving up those switchbacks on top of the Navajo sandstone, that was a very clean sort of light-colored uh, sandstone, and it wasn't very red, but we're up here at Park Avenue, and we can see these brilliant red beds of the Dewey Bridge member, as well as sort of the brown-orange cliffs of the Entrada. The difference between the colors has a lot to do with when these rocks are buried. So imagine sandstone being several thousand feet underground, and we get different types of fluids moving through these sandstones, and sometimes those fluids have uh, either oxidizing or reducing conditions and you might remember from the chemistry class that you probably hated or maybe you loved it but basically uh, if it's a reducing fluid it can actually sort of bleach the rock and it leaves a sort of white color and if it's an oxidizing environment it will leave more of that red color to it so that's a basic explanation for the different colors of the rocks here. All right so looking south at the LaSalle's that small volcanic mountain range we see in the foreground a field of vegetation can we use the rocks to understand what plants we are looking at? Yeah, exactly. We're looking at uh, the, the top of the Navajo sandstone out there to the south, southeast, and this sort of this park or sort of broad valley just to the south of us here is predominantly it looks like black brush, which is a shrub that's very common in this area. And probably what's happening here, you can see that there's not a lot of soil out here. Uh, it's a very uh, rocky environment, lots of erosion very dry overall, so our climate doesn't really tend to produce deep, rich soils. Uh, but what little soil there is is typically, actually it's usually blown in by the wind. So what I think we're looking at here is sort of a, a sand sheet. Uh, so wind blowing sand over the ridge and making some, some deeper soil here. And this is a pretty typical pattern you see here in, in arches. Um, anything that's sort of a medium to shallow soil depth, you'll see a black brush monoculture. So you're going to see that all day today. And in other areas where the soil gets really shallow or it's mostly bedrock, instead of black brush, you get a lot more pinion and juniper, as we can see there to the south. So in terms of changing environments, is it true that this area was once under the ocean? And how would the presence of a historic sea in this area alter events to come? Well, so that's one of the things that's just so cool about these rocks. I mean, they're obviously beautiful to look at, but that's sort of a romantic understanding, but when you really start thinking about what these rocks represent and the different environments, uh, it, it gets interesting on a lot of different levels. So you're right, this area has been underneath seas and in, in throughout its past. And, and by the way, these rocks are, are younger than the rocks that you see, say, like at the Grand Canyon. So uh, this whole package of rocks would be sort of sitting on top of all those rocks you'd see at Grand Canyon. And the oldest of, of, of which that are exposed here go back about 320 million years ago. And that might sound really old to you, but just remember that the Earth, we think, is around 4.6 billion years. So this is actually still pretty young stuff, but we don't see a lot of good records from Earth's past during that time. So uh, we're really limited to the rocks that are exposed in this area to understand what was happening. So 
To answer your question succinctly, yes, this area has been underneath an ocean many different times, and we get different rocks depending on how deep the water was. So, for instance, some of the oldest rocks in this area actually consist of uh, quite a bit of salt, known as the Paradox Formation. The salt was deposited in a restricted seaway about 320 million years ago, where we had these huge fluctuations in sea level in this restricted basin that would basically leave seawater stranded as global sea level would drop due to an ice age or a glaciation and all that salt would basically precipitate out as the water would evaporate and that's left behind some very large salt deposits which we're going to talk about more later. At other times we had instead of a shallow restricted seaway we had just a very thin amount of seawater sort of encroaching from the north and we can see evidence of this right here in the Park Avenue pullout so when you look at the Dewey Bridge, remember it's sort of sandwiched between the Navajo sandstone below and the Entrada sandstone above. And both of those are going to be representing a, basically an ancient hyper-arid desert. You can think of like a modern-day Saharan desert and windblown sand, just like we saw that modern sand dune down by Highway 191. But sandwiched in between these hyper-arid environments is this sort of very different-looking, kind of thinly-bedded, reddish-brown siltstone and mudstone. And what that indicates to us is something must have changed in the climate or the depositional setting here. And what we think probably happened is during this time in the early Jurassic, there was a uh, shallow seaway called the Sundance Seaway that was gently encroaching from the north. And if you follow the Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel here uh, to the west, like out in the San Rafael Swell, you'll see evidence of uh, marine setting, so a lot more gypsum or evaporite minerals out there to the west and if you've ever been to like Goblin Valley or even Capitol Reef uh, National Park this layer of the Carmel is much more prominent and you see a lot more indications of deeper water whereas right here in the Moab area it was kind of right on the fringe of the seaway and it represents a time when that Sundance Seaway kind of infringed and came down from the north. Alright so in an attempt to recap the rocks in this area are sandstone formed from sand deposits either by settling out of wind or water and this occurred well over 200 million years ago which is actually somewhat recent compared to the age of the earth it's less than 10 percent of the earth's total age these sandstone layers sit on top of an even older deposit of salt which was left here when an ancient sea evaporated a lot like the drying of the great salt lake happening now the next question is, can we determine the original source of these sand grains? To do that, we'll head up to the Petrified Dunes parking area, which will be on your right, three and a half miles up the road. Listen for replies and no direction. Piece the words together, make your own Here at the Petrified Dunes, the informational plaque indicates the ancient winds were blowing in from the northwest. How do we know what the wind was doing 200 million years ago? And what do we think was the original source of all this sand? Yeah, two big questions. So the first one, trying to understand which way the wind was blowing uh, some 200 million years ago is actually not as hard as it sounds. 
So one thing that's worth noting with all of these sandstone layers of the Colorado Plateau, particularly in the Navajo sandstone, which is wonderfully exposed uh, just to the east and northeast here. If you look over, you can actually see the highest point in Arches, which is Elephant Butte. And then the window section is just out of view. But if you look over to the east, you'll see some really nice exposures of Navajo sandstone. And typically with any sedimentary rock, you're going to expect uh, mostly flat layering as uh, gravity sort of dictates how the layers build up. But in areas that have abundant energy, so in areas that have a lot of wind or a lot of uh, currents from water, you can actually get something called cross bedding, which is essentially a bunch of parallel beds in the rock record that aren't really horizontal. Uh, they're actually sort of tilted at an angle. And we know that generally those represent the lee side of a dune. So basically if you think of the side of the dune where the sand is blowing onto, and those basically form thin lamina or thin lines in the rock record. And so if you were to go out and measure the face of these cross beds, and let's say you do this over a really large area, all the way from, say, Wyoming, where some of the Navajo sandstone is exposed, all the way down to Arizona, and you sort of average them statistically, you can actually see that the predominant wind direction some 200 million years ago was actually from the northwest. Now the question of where did all the sand come from is even more interesting, but this one requires a little bit more work. In general, these sand deposits are referred to as aeolian, which just means wind-derived, and they're very clean, basically almost 100% quartz uh, sands. And quartz is a very durable mineral. It travels a very long ways, and uh, it's, it sticks around when almost every other mineral kind of calls it quits. So we know that the, the source of the sand is probably from a very long ways away, and there was no way to really measure that until just a couple decades ago. Geologists started looking at something called zircons. It's a mineral that you'll sometimes find in these sandstone layers. And zircon is unique because it actually records when it cooled from a melt. So it kind of has this fingerprint of when that, that grain of sand was an igneous rock. And if you remember the whole rock cycle, a lot of the sand at one point was probably the core of a mountain range somewhere far away. And Geologists have looked at the zircon ages in these sandstones of the Colorado Plateau, and it turns out that at least about 50% of the sand probably came all the way from the Appalachians because the age of the zircons within these sandstone does not match any of the local source rocks for the Colorado Plateau. So in other words, the fingerprint doesn't quite match. So at least half of the sand probably traveled all the way from the Appalachian Mountains through a large river system that flowed sort of southeast to northwest and was deposited along a shallow seaway. And then longshore currents probably brought that along a coast that was to our northwest. And uh, when sea level would drop, that would expose these huge areas of sand and the wind would just be blowing uh, that sand down into the area that's currently the Colorado Plateau. Which, by the way, the Navajo sandstone or the Navajo erg uh, ERG is just a fancy word for a large sea of sand. This is w what we think is probably one of the largest seas of sand that has ever existed in Earth's history. So think of the Saharan Desert, but on steroids, and it would have stretched all the way from Wyoming down to Arizona. So super cool to think about how far this sand has traveled and, and where it came from. So the towering Appalachian Mountains were eroded out to the western U.S., 
and then heavy winds from the northwest blew those sand grains onto the Colorado Plateau, which now form these petrified dunes. That is quite a journey. The next stop on our journey is about three miles up the road at Balanced Rock. Calling, listen for replies and no direction. Piece the words together, make your own tale. Over there beside the nest, scattered widely from the rest of play. Here at Balanced Rock Pullout, you can see that the Dewey Bridge layer is amazingly wavy and crumbly in its appearance. What is that waviness all about? And why haven't structures like this precarious balancing rock and the delicate arch been toppled by earthquakes or other forces of nature? Hey, great question, Terry. So you're absolutely right. A lot of these rocks would fall right down if we were in California because that's a very tectonically active area, whereas here we don't have any big, big faults like the San Andreas faults. We have some small ones that we saw like the Moab fault, but only very rarely do we actually have sort of uh, earthquakes here, nothing like California or up in the Northwest. So uh, you're keying in on a really important thing. We've talked about uh, sandstone a lot, but we haven't focused in too much on the Dewey Bridge and why it's so contorted and wavy. And there's a couple different thoughts on that. One of the thoughts is that that Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel Formation has quite a bit of gypsum, uh, the same stuff that drywall is made out of, and a couple other minerals that tend to hold water. And when that water is sort of uh, compressed and, and buried, that water can get pushed out and cause this really crazy wavy bedding that we're seeing, contorted bedding. And I can tell you from a rock climbing perspective, that's got to be one of the scariest rock layers to, to get to climb through here in the park. So it's very weak and it has a lot to do with the uh, formation of arches. So we talked about that these different rock layers are important and what happens here is the Stewie Bridge member preferentially weathers a bit faster, it's weaker, and it's right underneath that slick rock member of the Entrada. And so we'll see in the window section and a couple other spots in the park, that's a pretty classic place where we get the beginnings of arch formation because it's sort of a weak layer, it's a weak interface, and it tends to erode faster than the rock above it. Next stop will be Windows Parking Area. And to get there, make a right just up the main road and follow that side road to the end. There, you'll find a nice hike to several prominent arches. And by the way, on the way in, there's some great exposures of Navajo sandstone where you're going to see some excellent examples of large crossbeds. So these crossbeds, again, would have represented the lee face of a gigantic sand dune. These sand dunes could have been several hundred feet tall. And uh, as you're driving in and out of the window section, be sure and check those out. Standing side by side and face to face pretending Melody of sounds becomes a story Feathered hand to place the mark Sigh escaping from your heart away Okay, so here we are at the north and south window. We've got these two large arches as well as turret arch. And then behind us, we'd have a, a double arch. 
And we've been talking about these rock layers, and we finally have arrived at our very first arch. And we can see that the overlying Entrada sandstone is a bit stronger, tends to form an arch, whereas that Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel, that wavy red bed, contorted bedding area beneath the Entrada is what sort of creates a weak point in the rock, and that's what starts the weathering. It's more easily erodible, and sometimes we might have some water kind of trickling down through the sandstone layer above. It hits that Dewey Bridge member, and the water has a more difficult time passing through that finer-grained rock, and it sort of pulls there and weakens that rock, and that's sort of the, the beginning of the formation of an arch. So that's a great place to go check that out up close and personally. All right, so check out these accessible arches here at the windows, and we'll then meet you at our next and final stop at Panorama Point, which is back up the main road about one and a half miles from Balanced Rock. Panorama Point is such a gorgeous overlook. Chris, you were also saying that it's a great place to discuss why this area, why this national park, contains the perfect storm of historic and current conditions to produce all the numerous arches that are found here today. That's right. So to get to the bottom of why there's so many arches in Arches National Park, we're stopped here at Panorama Point, which is a phenomenal example of the processes at work here. So if you look to the northwest, you'll see this broad valley. It's called Salt Valley. And you'll see it's sort of a flat bottom valley. Very beautiful. And you'll see that both sides of Salt Valley kind of have uh, fins of Entrada sandstone, particularly in the fiery furnace area. If you look kind of due north of Panorama Point, you'll see hundreds of fins of the Entrada, the slick rock member of the Entrada sandstone. So kind of putting this whole story together, we've got the sandstone of the Entrada, we've got that Dewey Bridge member underneath, and then the big player in the whole story here is that paradox formation, or that salt layer that was deposited some 320 million years ago. So what you want to imagine is that salt gets buried underneath all these other types of rocks, sandstone and, and mudstone, and as soon as that salt sort of gets buried, it starts flowing upwards because it has positive buoyancy. It doesn't like to be compressed, and it finds these weaknesses in the rock. In this case, most of the Salt Valley anticlines in this region, which I'll explain in a second, trend northwest to southeast. And that's a result of basically some, some older mountain ranges that used to be in this area. But, you know, we have a saying in geology is that old faults never die, and what happened in the past is going to affect the future. So essentially that salt migrated upwards into these northwest-southeast trending structures and sort of bowed the rocks up, and we call these anticlines. And you can almost imagine an anticline like a like a big dome, or if you think of like a spoon, if you were to take a spoon and kind of flip it over, sort of like an elongate upwarp, and that would be your, your typical anticline. And that salt pushes the rocks up, but as it's doing that, it's also bending and breaking some of these rocks. So if you look at the fiery furnace, all those fins are basically a result of some of the bending and breaking that is is due from that salt moving up up into these other rock layers 
So what happens is these these fins sort of exist. Geologists use the term joints to mean just basically like a crack, a crack in the rock. And as as these joints are exposed to the Earth's surface, it encounters quite a bit of weathering, meaning uh, chemical and physical weathering attack these rocks. And in places where these fins have formed, it's much easier for arches to form because if you think about it, it sort of carved out the initial sort of form of an arch. And all that needs to happen then is the interior of the arch uh, eventually crumbles away. And especially in those areas where we see the contact below with the Dewey Bridge member of the Carmel, like we saw at the window section, or in other areas, for instance, over by Delicate Arch or Landscape Arch, instead of the Dewey Bridge, it's actually a small sort of seam where uh, erosion tends to occur more frequently. Those areas are weaknesses that eventually turn into the arches that we see today. So it's a combination of the, the rock type, the structural geology, or how the rocks have been bent and broken by that, that salt moving upwards. And then in this case here in Salt Valley, a big part of the story is the valley is sort of a flat bottom that's a result of a big collapse feature uh, that's fairly common in these Salt Valley anticlines. So as that salt rises to the surface, it actually interacts with groundwater and streams, and eventually that salt dissolves, it gets carried away, and that leaves a void. And so that whole valley sort of collapsed down in on itself. And what we're seeing here at the Salt Valley viewpoint to the northwest here at Panorama Point, we're seeing that valley. You'll notice there's not really a stream carving that area. It's more just a big collapse. You can think of it sort of like a trap door. So those things work in concert with the climate. And in this area, we're sort of in a semi-desert environment where if we add uh, more water, more human environment, our rates of weathering would be much faster. And it might be plausible to suggest that these arches would weather too quickly to sort of be able to stand for very long and they would collapse much more frequently. And if it was much drier than it currently is, we wouldn't really have the right balance and we wouldn't have enough weathering. So we're kind of in this perfect combination of we've got the rocks, we've got the structural geology, and we've got the right climate to cause all of these arches to basically weather out and become exposed over time. Amazing. Thank you for sharing your time and enthusiasm towards all this cool geology. Before we go, I'd like to ask, what is it that has kept you motivated to continue to learn and stay so engaged in this place for all these years? Yeah, so a lot of information seems very technical. For me, it's, it's um, and I think many of us come here, um, actually millions of people visit Arches because this, this is a sacred landscape and people have realized that for thousands of years, right? Indigenous cultures have been in Arches uh for, for many thousands of years and to many cultures, it's my understanding that they held many of these arches and, and, and rocks as sort of sacred beings in their own way. So this, I think everyone who comes here gets it. And so for me, getting to learn about the rocks, the stories they tell, and, and knowing something a little bit more about uh, the, the why behind the feelings of, of looking into Earth's deep past and then really in a way, uh, I think it, it can be a way to feel wonderfully insignificant. When you come here and look at these rocks, you get a taste of deep geologic time and some of those day-to-day things that don't really matter in the grand scheme. Some of those things kind of go away out here when you look at these rocks, and it does help you kind of focus on what's 
most important, help you reconnect with the landscape. So I think that's what keeps me motivated to keep learning more and more and appreciative of, of this place. That was fantastic, Chris. Thank you for distilling down the rich geologic history of this place into digestible content for all of us. Of course, Arches National Park doesn't end here. Further up the road, you will see the iconic delicate arch, get up close to the fiery furnace and Devil's Garden at the end of the road. There are amazing hikes and features all throughout the park, but we will end the tour here so you can connect with this place on your own. Chris and I would like to thank Science Moab and Christina Young for hosting this GeoTour podcast on her website, sciencemoab.org. We urge you to check out more of the Science Moab podcasts to learn about the fantastic science of Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. If you're inspired, please consider donating to Science Moab to support this invaluable educational tool housed right here in Moab. Hearty thank yous to both Brett Tobolsky and Joel Mole for their original and excellent tune, Council Grove, as well as to the Fiery Furnace Marching Band for their excellent tune, Paula. Thank you to Julia Buckwalter for the artwork provided for the GeoTour flyer, and thank you to KZMU for allowing us to record and mix this podcast in their studio. Finally, thank yous to the Moab Festival of Science creator Sasha Reed and director Erica Geiger. This podcast was created as part of the Moab Festival of Science, which showcases the wonders and values of science with special emphasis on the Colorado Plateau. Come check it out each fall right here in Moab, Utah. Rock on, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.